0: Do a quick check on the volume level, give me a thumbs up, or, thank you. I'm staying in one of the teacher, visiting teacher apartments at the Forest Refuge uh, this fall. And uh, so I commute through the woods a short distance to get here and And just now I was coming through the woods and it's dark and drippy and I heard uh, the call of a barred owl, which is one of my favorite things about spending time around here, is hearing them now and then. Even through the winter you hear them and their calls echo through the wood in this amazing way. Maybe some of you know the call. I won't imitate it now, it would be... (laughs) wouldn't do justice to the barred owl, and it would probably be painful for you, but um... But it just took me out of, out of myself hearing the call into this wildness and out of sort of what felt like a small world I had collapsed into in my mind took me out of that for a moment into uh, something outside the realm of the human machinations and all of the nonsense we get up to. And a barred owl, the call of a barred owl is, is a fine thing. And I hope you are blessed to hear it sometimes. We need to be careful that we don't take these things for granted. We uh, humans need to be really careful or we won't hear these barred owls. Hmm. So good evening and greetings sisters and brothers in aging, sickness, and death. (laughs) It's such an uplifting opening line. (laughs) It's traditional to begin talks in, in uh, Thailand and in other Buddhist countries. This is a traditional way to begin a Dharma talk. Greetings. Friends in aging, sickness, and death. And this is something that binds us together, and and points to the fact that we Buddhists really know how to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's said in the legendary story of of the Buddha coming to his his quest for understanding, his spiritual quest, that it was reflecting on these. Uh, on these kind of fundamental truths that he, like all beings, was subject to aging, to illness, to death, to being parted from uh, the, the things that he, he would hold dear. There was actually the contemplation of this. He said that when he, when he thought about this, that I too am subject to these things. He said the vanities of youth, of health and life, left him and realized that he wasn't going to live forever in good health. And so this inspired him, okay, if, if this is the trajectory of life, if I'm just going to eventually get old, sick and die, what's the point? You know, is, is there some understanding that, that, um, that I can apply to this sort of fundamental existential question that makes sense of that. What's the point then? So I I think it's kind of powerful to to bring to mind this contemplation was what spurred him into this incredible change in his life, this renunciation and this uh, really completely changed the whole way he, he viewed what he was going to do what he did and we have we we've re, we have the benefit of that choice in these these teachings which have somehow managed to survive over these years and come to us in this in some form but a a useful form and and generally you know we we don't tend to like to think about these things very much and there's some strong conditioning to avoid these subjects. We tend to see life life's happening now and and old age and sickness and death and those those are down the road hopefully down a very long road down out there somewhere and we'll deal with them when the time comes. And here especially maybe this is true here in the States there's such a a glorification of youth and youthfulness it's almost like a cult of youth, and youth is put on a pedestal. and And, and following on from that is this, this sense of, as though we're not supposed to actually get old, as though as though aging and is, is evidence of bad taste or a personal failure, that we did something wrong if it happens. We blew it somehow. And you know, there's such a huge, it's such big business, a huge industry that's catering to this cult of youth and, and you know, all of the anti-aging creams and tonics and lotions and, and they're promising eternal youth. And then the world of advertising, trying to convince us that this is aging is somehow optional. I was looking at some ads recently, You know, it's like, we just have to want it bad enough. And be willing to fight for it. And so these ads, they're saying, join me in the battle against aging. You know, and this beautiful young person. And another one said, every morning, I fight aging with everything I've got. (laughs) Is this what you say to yourself every morning? Yep. Yeah. Join me. So so are we in solidarity here? I wanna know you're with me. I mean it's it's as though this natural progression of life is somehow optional and you know, yes, there it's not to say that there's something wrong with trying to look our best and take care of ourselves and maybe some of these things are good for us, you know, do promote sense of well-being. And and, and it makes sense to, to try to take care of ourselves and good health is such a blessing and anyone who has struggled with their health knows this only too well. So it's not about that, but but to live as though this is avoidable or optional shows and really impressive capacity for denial, which, you know, Andrea spoke about as as a manifestation of one of the ways delusion shows up. And and of course, here in the States, we have, we have um, taken denial to um, heretofore unbelievable heights. You know, it's unprecedented new levels of denial that are rampant (laughs) here in the States, especially uh, among some of our politicians, I would say. But these reflections remind me of of a story, an ancient story. This is from the Mahabharata, a very ancient story. And in this in this um, part of this this epic uh, story, there are these group of brothers and um, four brothers. They're kind of main characters in the in the tale. And um, there's there's the situation where a, a water demon, a yaksha, has has cast a spell over three of the brothers and and put them into an enchanted sleep. And Yudhisthira, who's the, the one who's, they've drunk water without um, saying, can I have some, um, to this this water. It's kind of a, an amphibious demon or, or deity. And so, this, this Yaksha agrees to free them from this enchanted sleep if Yudhisthira can answer a series of questions correctly. And so it's a long series of questions, but at one point he says, he asks him, what is the most remarkable thing, the most wonderful and remarkable thing in the world? And Yudhisthira says that the most remarkable thing is that day after day, countless creatures, countless beings, are going to the abode of Yama. Yama is the god of death. Are going to the abode of the god of death. And yet those that remain behind believe them, believe themselves to be immortal, live their lives as though this will not happen to them. And there's another story from uh, one of the, the the Buddha's suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. A, a man has died and he's come again before Yama, before the god of death. And And this particular teaching focuses a little bit on on the teaching on karma, law of cause and effect in terms of our actions. So he he shows up and, and Yama says, good man, didn't you see the first divine messenger that appeared among human beings? No, Lord, I did not see. But good man, didn't you ever see among human beings A woman or a man, 80, 90, or a hundred years of age, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, wobbling as they go along, leaning on a stick, ailing, youth gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or bald, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs. Kind of quite a description there. (laughs) These guys don't hold back sometimes. And he says, yes, Lord, I have seen this. Good man, didn't it occur to you an intelligent and mature person? I too am subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. And then he goes through the same questions. Uh, Didn't you see a sick person? With, again, quite a nice description of that. And, And then a corpse, bloated and fetid and putrid and all kinds of nice images there with the corpse. Didn't you happen to notice these divine, the second and the third divine messengers? So this idea that these um, messengers of our mortality, that they're divine, that they're pointing to something really um, potentially powerful for us to consider and to reflect on. And so if aging and growing old is evidence of, of our personal failure, then dying, the ultimate, in, in having made a, a bad choice. <laughs> the ultimate failure. You know, and we hide it away so we don't have to look at it. We sanitize the dead in funeral parlors so they, they look better than they did when they were alive. <laughs> like they're just, you know chilled out having a nice nap. And, you know, we treat it like it's a mistake. (laughs) Like it's a disease for which we might find a cure. Uh, Someone gave me this Time magazine. The cover reads, Can Google Solve Death? (laughs) I mean, we go to Google for kind of everything else, so. (laughs) You know? Well, up here, we we refer to Ajahn Google when we need a, <laughs> we need a little info on something. <laughs> we go to Ajahn Google. <laughs> Always has an answer for you. You know, you type in Anguttara Nikaya 3.36. Ajahn Google. So maybe you know, can Google solve death? Wow, what's up with that? It's amazing and the fear of death is is so pervasive it may be subtle but it's pervasive in our minds and we do a lot to keep it out of our consciousness and, and do various things to to try to help us not not bring these things to mind to we focus on other things we focus so much of our energy on acquiring things acquiring actual stuff possessions and knowledge and degrees and experiences. And we use this then to define who we are, our sense of who we are, who we project, how we project ourselves and how we hold ourselves. And it can, it can keep these, these uh, things at bay. It can shield us from the, these kind of fundamental truths. You know, we get focused on, on all of these things and um, it can, It can have that effect, but the reality is that aging, sickness, and uh, ultimately death are a natural, inevitable part of life. It's the trajectory if we take birth. And this is true for all beings. It was true for the Buddha. This is a a short uh, part of a a very short uh, sutta called the Jara Sutta. Jara is the Pali word for aging or old age. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern Monastery in the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. And then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hands and said, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, (laughs) his back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, and of the nose, the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness when alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back is bent forward, and there is a discernible change in the faculties of the eye, the ear, of the (laughs) nose, the tongue, and the body. I just love this sutta, this image of these very old friends. You know, the Ananda, they were cousins. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for a long, long time. He outlived the Buddha. And uh, the kindness of giving him a massage in old age. Blessed one, dude, we got old. What happened? (laughs) You know, it's so kind of real pointing to that that kindness and this Um, you know, this this inevitability of these changes. And when death comes, as it certainly will, it's gonna take all of these acquisitions, everything that we've gotten, including, and maybe especially our sense of health, of self, we're gonna have to lay it all down. And in a very real way, it's not waiting at the end of this long road. It's our constant companion and walks with us every step of our life. A lot of quotations in this, these notes I'm noticing. This is from uh, one of my favorite books. It was, it was the most important book to me when I was in high school. It's called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. This is a short, uh, some words from that. This is when, Um, Don Juan is talking to Carlos, who's kind of a teacher-student sort of relationship. He said, death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling, feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and change fast. One of us here has to learn again that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and dropped the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at arm's length and it may tap you at any moment. So really, you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that." And those are strong words, but they point to an important truth because we actually have no idea when our death might tap us. There are no guarantees. The next breath is not guaranteed. And there's a reflection that came from the t- teacher Stephen Batchelor, given that death alone is certain and the time of death uncertain, given this, what shall I do? And I have noticed over time and more and more, I see this practice as a preparation for this eventuality. Practicing for dying, it's gonna be, it's guaranteed to be the next, one of the next really interesting things that we, we do. And if we can be there I want to be, really, I want to be there for that moment, that last breath. I was holding my father's hand when he died. I had one hand on his heart, holding his hand. And just before he died, he opened his eyes for the first time in maybe 36 hours or something, more than that. And he was looking, I don't know where he was looking, it was not in that room. I don't know what he saw. I'm interested to see if what I see. And if we practice in this, in the light of this, in a skillful way, each breath, what if this is the last one? This step, this grumpy mood, the last grumpy mood, yes. We say yes to that. The last confused mind state. The last sensation, the last sound, whatever. We can hold our life in this this way with this sense of the poignance of that. It can really shift the way we relate to this next experience. Try it right now, this breath. The sound these thoughts. Yes. Let me be there for that. On the morning of his death at age seventy seven, the Zen master Kozan Ichko, this is in thirteen sixty. He had said that he wrote this poem I'm going to read, laid down his brush and died sitting up. Empty handed I enter the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Such a beautiful expression of a kind of deep equanimity, I think and this letting go. These two simple things, they got tangled up. Reminds me about this very old monk. Some of you will have heard me tell stories about a monk in upper Burma that I had the good fortune to to meet and see often over many years. The Myatong Sayadaw, his name, uh, we my friends nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. Uh, one of the happiest, the happiest being I've ever met. He died when he was 99. So he was very old. He'd been in robes for 87 years when he died. And uh, he was the real deal. You know, he was uh, well known as a teacher to some well fam- famous, other, other teachers who were famous. And uh, he was worth going all the way to Burma just to sit with him for a while. One of my friends, uh, asked him, once asked him, Sayadaw, why are you so happy? And he said, Oh, I have no ill will towards you or you or anybody, anywhere. <laughs> and he just started laughing. I mean, can, can we imagine that possibility? Ill will not arising, not there. Someone recently, in a meeting, in one of the meetings here on the retreat, was asking me if I knew any fully enlightened beings. And I can't say, it said that only a Buddha can know that, but I've met some who seem like good candidates, like the happy Sayadaw. One time I was, uh, I used to help with this retreat at a monastery very near there, Ch- Chaswa Monastery. And the abbot there was Sayadaw Ulakana, who, the teacher of mine and um, and I lived as a as a monk uh, at his monastery for a time and very dear to me he was very kind had a big heart a lot of love for him and he was quite ill uh, at one point uh, with a heart condition and we were very worried about him and and then one day this this old monk came to visit and everyone was very excited, and they said, oh, he's, he's fully enlightened, I Said he's an arahant. But he's just kind of an everyday run-of-the-mill arahant. He's not a special one. I mean, huh, this run-of-the-mill everyday arahant <laughs> <laughs> showing up. But Sayada Ullakana, who had been so sick, he, he came, when he, he came, his, this monk had been his teacher, and... Uh, when he saw him, he he was just beaming out of his his, um, illness, just beaming as he paid respects. I have a beautiful photograph of him bowing, paying respects to his teacher, (coughs) to the -the run-of-the-mill arahant there. And, um, you know, I don't know, but there are these certainly indications of this possibility. It's very real to me. I've gotten way off track here, but a story which I had permission from Andrea to tell because I think she was there, and I forget the circumstances. But we went to was I there? I wasn't there, so I heard this story from Andrea. <laughs> but she said I could tell it. That um, she was there with some others and to visit him, and um, and went in and and uh, asked, you know, said hi and how are you doing? He said. Oh, I almost died last week. <laughs> Just not touched by that at all. Amazing mind. This is a possibility for us to have that kind of openness and balance of mind. Hmm. And the Buddha taught that it's our attachments and all that we cling to that is is so much the source of suffering in our lives. And, And if we live with the understanding that we will at some point be parted from everything, from everything that we hold on to, including whatever sense of self we may have cobbled together and created, we might be able to start letting go of things now. And this might save us from a lot of suffering down the road. These are the words of the Buddha. There are five facts, O bhikkhus, O practitioners, which ought to be often contemplated upon by everyone, whether woman or man, householder, whether one gone forth as a nun or a monk, by all. What five? I am subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. I am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir." So this might not land as a really cheery list of things to contemplate frequently. And our heart might might or might not leap up. Any hearts leaping up out there? And we know we're gonna get sick and old and eventually die and. We know you can't take it with you, but why, why dro- dwell on, on those kinds of subjects? You know, isn't, isn't it better to enjoy life? Why, why would we want to think of these things? Aren't they, aren't they morbid thoughts, depressing thoughts? And isn't life hard enough without bringing these things to mind? And you know, why would the Buddha suggest we reflect on these regularly? And maybe he made a mistake. The Buddha must have, the translators made a mistake. (laughs) And of course there may be times, depending on what's going on in our life and our circumstances, when it isn't a good idea to reflect on on these. There might be times when it's the skillful thing to do is, is to turn, not to turn towards these. But if they are brought to mind and reflected on skillfully, they can be a powerful tool in our lives, in our meditation practice. And if we're young, we may think of these things that they'll rob us of something. And, you know, they're okay for old people like Greg up there and, (laughs) and okay for nuns and monks probably. But we feel like, you know, our whole life is unfolding and, and we'll lose something, rob ourselves of some vitality or sense of possibility. And the point of these reflections, the Buddha's idea here was not to make us feel bad or to engender or, or create in us a sense of, of powerless, powerlessness in face of the inevitable, a resignation. And even though when, sometimes when we think of these reflections or bring them to mind or hear this list for the first time, if that's true for any of you, we, we might feel that it would be depressing and that and that it's it's yeah will take us down into into sorrow or uh, despair but i think we often find that the opposite proves to be true and that if we are living with an unacknowledged maybe uh, a fear that we haven't really let in that we actually bring that to the surface of our lives and and, and reflect in this way that um that the opposite is true. And that if we're living with these unacknowledged fears of death and aging, that it can rob us of so much in life. And we can find we're so focused on surviving that we don't actually live. We can spend so much time and energy avoiding these realities that we might come to the end of our life and realize we had never actually lived. But by bringing them, we can start to unbind and uh, the, the conditioning around these uh, starts, to, um, starts to unravel and let, we let it go. We feel lighter, we feel more ease. The Thai forest master Ajahn Lee Damadaro once said, Aging, illness and death are treasures for those who understand them their noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. That's not our usual attitude. Bow, let me bow to these truths. But they, these reflections let us stand on the truth of things. We stand on reality. We take our stand there. And they can awaken in us this sense of the um, preciousness, the fragility and preciousness of life. I think it, this may be true for, for most of us that as we get older, the passage of time seems to speed up, at least at times. Remember as a kid, how long we used to have summer vacation and it just seemed so long. And now years go by like this. And just now, what happened to the last two or eight weeks of this retreat? You know, it seems, even if you came just for the second half, it seems like a lifetime's ago. How many lifetimes have you lived <laughs> in the last two weeks? I mean, just yesterday, those mind states and all of the stuff you were so wound up about or whatever. It's like ancient history. <laughs> And of course the perception of time is not fixed and a single period of meditation can be an eternity and then a year goes by in an instant. This is uh, from Crowfoot who was a, a Blackfoot, Native American Blackfoot warrior and a teacher, speaker. A little while and I will be gone from among you when I cannot tell. From nowhere we came, into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And so if we actually open to our own mortality directly, and connect to life's brevity, fragility, but not in a morbid way, but we touch the beauty and the preciousness of this. And it really can lead us to examine our life from the perspective of really what asking what is worth doing. So there's a kind of wholesome and skillful urgency that can come if we approach these in the right way. We have to be careful it doesn't lead us into some Kind of desperation, but there can be this sense of the preciousness. And I think all of us have some relationship to this understanding, or we wouldn't have come on a retreat like this, and we wouldn't still be here. And no one made us come. We made this a priority. That's not a small thing, that choice. I don't care how you feel about how your practice is going. That's the least important thing here is how you feel you're doing. Toss that baby out. You're always going to be wrong and it just doesn't matter. <laughs> it does not matter. But touching this this whatever it is, this turning of the mind towards this understanding that we're aiming at here. That's no small thing in the world and And it's a beautiful thing, and a thing to hold yourself with, with great respect to, to touch this. But it's worth asking the question, what is worth doing? How am I spending my time? I think it was the teacher, Stephen Levine, who wrote a book called One Year to Live there's a practice that some people do. Where they 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 undertake a, a, a practice of, of living their life as though they had a year to live. And I remember there are many times when I have asked myself, you know, if I knew that I had this finite time, if I knew this was my last year to live, how would I, would I, What would I do differently? And sometimes I can look and I'd say, oh, nothing really, it's okay. And sometimes I have to ask myself, Greg, what are you doing here? There are times when that's a valid question. What are you doing? What are you thinking? So we might bring one or more of these reflections to mind. You know, as I said, many people reflect on them daily. You know, for example, the reflection on, on the first of these. Uh, I am subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. You know, we we all know we're getting older. That's obvious. Anybody, you ask anybody, are you aging? Yeah. Nobody's going to probably say no. To that question, but are we? Do we really sit with that reality and soak? Let it soak into our cells and bones. Drop below the level of. Of just the intellect there. I mean, it, this connects us directly with the truth of impermanence, doesn't it? Which is at the core of what the Buddha taught. And we might be fine contemplating thinking about impermanence and sort of, it's it's a cool thing to say around meditation centers, everything's impermanent. It's a good Buddhist thing to say. Anicca, get that Pali word, toss it around. Uh, <laughs> When it And, you know, we like to see it out in nature. <laughs> Impermanence. Yeah, cool, changes the seasons, you know. But when it comes to these bodies, <laughs> not quite the same, you know. We don't like to see it. And we look in the mirror, for me, that's the thing best avoided first thing in the morning. There's, um. yeah, it's not a, it's not a beautiful sight, you know. My my what hair I've got left is like a wave breaking <laughs> off to one side and and the whole face is kinda mashed over to you know, to kind of move it back around so it's it's not all pushed to that side. <laughs> the side that I've been sleeping on is you know. And the the sad and tragic truth of gravity's, you know, this low of slowly working on the face. <laughs> and, you know, my forehead expands daily. <laughs> and not because of growing intelligence, but, you know, this stuff is coming out. And, you know, we we don't like to see it, we we deny. So I'm, you probably have noticed because you see me bowing and I stand with my back to you. And, you know, it doesn't show right now probably, but there's this very thin patch up here. And, I can't tell you for how long I would see that coming on, and when I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, it's, it's just a cowlick." <laughs> I don't know. Some of you, some of you from uh, where English isn't your first language, might not know this word cowlick, but it's like you know these kind of swirly things that happen in hair sometimes, and it's supposed. To, I guess it looks like a cow has licked you there, where the cow, the cow of age has been licking my head, and. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, I just would say, oh, it's just, it's always been like that. You know, it's just, just one of those cowlicks. You know, it's like, no, man, your hair's coming out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, and it's so funny, you know, how these things land, these signs of <laughs> aging. Like, some years ago now, I went to visit a, a friend of mine who'd been one of my business partners, and she was much younger than me, and. You know, started a family and, and this was after we'd closed down the business and I went by to see and she had um, twin, twin little girls and at that time they were, I don't know, four or five, you know, preschool kindergarten age and, and so I, I came walking up to the door and I rang the bell and the, and the curtain was pulled aside and this little face looks out and then I hear this voice saying Mom, there's an old man at the door <laughs> and you know, it's so, f- I mean, this is a four-year-old girl. And my heart just sank. <laughs> you know, I did not want to be an old man at the door. You know, I just was like, oh no, you know. You know, anyone over the age of 10 was an old person to this four-year-old. So, But it was so interesting to see where that landed. I was not happy being an old man at the door. <laughs> You know, and and you know, you go to the store, and maybe they're just told to say this to everyone. But you know, can I help you out with your groceries? <laughs> and it's like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I try to take care of myself, and I exercise. You know, pretty well. I ride my bike. I try not to be stupid in what I eat, and and so a few years ago, I I kind of came. Well, it's getting more than a few, but I, I got to a place some years ago where I I was down with being a middle-aged man. You know, it's okay, yeah. As long as I get to be kind of a youthful, sort of bouncy middle-aged man. <laughs> and, and I was talking on this subject um, when I was 59. And I think I happened to mention that in the hall. And um, someone who, who was in the healthcare profession um, told one of my colleagues, a friend of mine said, you know, I hate, I hate to say this, but you're going to have to tell Greg that um, in the healthcare profession, 60 is uh, considered geriatric. (laughs) And um, so, (laughs) you know, suddenly, oh no, I've got, I'm now, I've got to, so I, I've got to work with being geriatric now. And, um, yeah. So, you know, I'm still working on that one. (laughs) had a couple of years now. And so, you know, these self-images, you know, we, they take a lot of work and they're inherently problematic. So, you know, we, we get one together. Yeah, the bouncy middle-aged guy and then, and then it's out of date and and something happens, you know, that shatters or shakes it, the old man at the door or whatever and, and it's out of date. And so then, you know, okay, we adjust it you know, like I'm adjusting into some kind of bouncy geriatric guy. I can't make that one work as well as middle-aged for some reason. But the point is not to, like, get good at adjusting our self-image, you know. We're we're trying to go beyond images here to something more real and true and, and connecting with the way it really is. And, you know, there can be some wisdom in, in thinking about our aging and, and worries that we would have about that in terms of it's wise to plan for, for old age and but but we but fear and suffering do not have to be part of that process. And, and so yeah, we come to terms with the inevitable aging of the body perhaps in some way and and that. But what about the mind, aging of the mind? Minds are subject to aging too. And we can see, okay, I'm practicing now and this will serve me as I as I move through life's changes and um, you know we can age, as we age and deal with this movement towards the end of our lives, if we can stay mindful and alert and practice in that way, but what if our mind ceases to function well what if what if the our idea of practice slips away in some some way you know I mean for some years now, I'm noticing if I don't write things, if I don't write it down, forget it, you know, and it seems like that didn't used to be the case (laughs) so much. And my mother in, in the years before her death, she, she had some, uh, some senile dementia of some kind. She had very diminished mental capacities. And, and I'm very much like my mom in a lot of ways. I had such a great mom. So when I think about the ways that I'm like her, it makes me happy. But, you know, maybe this is in store for me. I take after her a lot. And, you know, we tend to fear, I think, loss of our mental capacities much more than, than physical decline. And we were talking uh, in the dining room, the my colleagues and I, uh, some of us the other night about, uh, this, this uh, great teacher, uh, beloved uh, monk, Mahagosananda. He was the, called the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. And he was, um, oh, there's lots of great stories about him. He was a peace activist and he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize four times. And I think he should have won it all four of those times myself. There's a beautiful photograph at, um, at Spirit Rock, some of you. Uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, some of you may have seen. It's a, it's a photograph of uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda, and they're, they're bowing to each other, and they're bent way over. Each one is trying to get lower than the other one to show more respect, and they're, they're way down. They're like, you know, they're as low down as they can get, trying to show the greater respect, to be lower, to bow more fully. And in his, in his later years, Mahagosananda uh, suffered a great decline in his mental capacities. And, um, you know, maybe it was Alzheimer's disease. And I, he, lived, he lived near here, not far from here, as he, in his old older age. And I used to have a chance to go visit him once in a while. And he didn't know me, but I, I liked to go see him and pay respects. And once in a while he would come by the meditation center earlier than that. And, and the last, I think the last time I saw him, I had gone in, and and his attendant was there, and I and and I said I'd like to pay respects to um, to uh, Mahagosananda, to the Ajahn, and um, and he said yes, he's in his room. You can go, and uh, so I went into the room to to just pay respects, and and he as I came in, he just his his face lit up, and. Uh, He wasn't even really speaking at that point. And he started handing me gifts from his shelves, bar of soap and some uh, cookies or something that was there, and just beaming, and it was like being bathed in love. It's emotional for me to uh, recall that, like being bathed in love and light in that moment. We were talking about um, he was at, uh, what was the event at Spirit Rock? A big meeting. There was a big meeting at Spirit Rock and then the Dalai Lama and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of big names were there and, and Mahagosnaanda had been invited also. And, um, you know, he had to have people with him all the time because he, he would just have wandered off somewhere probably. and But so many people said that just to be around him was, worth going to this conference." And they gave him the job of handing out blessing cords. I remember hearing this, I wasn't able to be there. And, and, um, and he loved handing them out. And, and everyone felt who, who was there said, that was such a great blessing to receive this from him. And it was as though everything had fallen away but metta. That's all that was left. That sounds really good to me. I don't mind if everything but that goes away. So we should practice now. Someone once uh, asked uh, the great Indian uh, teacher, uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. He, there's a very uh, beautiful book called I Am That. It's a collection of conversations and sayings from him. And someone, he lived uh, to be quite, elderly and when he was in his 80s he lived in mumbai very simple life and someone asked him what it was like to be uh, getting old and being a really old yogi and he said oh i just watch senility come in i see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis and he just roared with laughter reminds me of the happy side just you know it's like so what no deal And when people who met Deepama, the great teacher Deepama, and someone asked her later in her life, what was in her mind? What was it like in there? And she said, oh, there's three things. Mindfulness, concentration, and loving kindness. Yeah. Great. You know, this possibility to have... have, uh, Taken our practice to this point, and this is real. These are not just stories. This is real. This possibility. This understanding. And I feel like these, hearing about these things, and and the, hearing these stories, point to um, that there's maybe something beyond, larger than, other than just the thinking mind that we tend to to um, put so much attention on, and. There's something, we've seen this, what is it that is able to see the arising and passing of a thought? To see the functioning of the mind. What is it that is able to see the arising and passing of consciousness itself? We can see this. What awareness, what is it? You know, maybe there's something beyond the thinking mind that isn't affected by these changes. (laughs) And I think we connect more and more directly and intimately with, with some aspect of awareness that um, it's not affected by anything. The awareness of confusion is not confused. The awareness of fear is not afraid. Maybe all kinds of things can come and go and that there's something there that will remain unaffected, unperturbed. So maybe aging illness, the death of the body can happen, and there's an aspect of awareness that is not disturbed by that reminds me of a story of the uh, the sixteenth Karmapa who was uh, lived and traveled a lot in the United States a beloved tibetan teacher and and he died in uh, near Chicago, I think in a hospital there and and there was a story I read that he was in the hospital quite ill, but all these all the 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 staff and the doctors and nurses used to like to just come and hang out with him because it was so nice to hang out with him. And they didn't know anything about him. They weren't practitioners. They just liked to be around him. And, and, uh, people were, some of his devotees and followers were upset, you know, and he was definitely coming to the end of his life. And at some point he said to them, don't worry, nothing happens. And pointing to some understanding that, that is not affected by these changes, perhaps. So I'm going to end with uh, a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh. This is the contemplation on no coming, no going. This body is not me. I am not limited by this body. I am life without boundaries. I have never been born and I have never died. Look at the ocean and the sky filled with stars, manifestations from my from my wondrous true mind. Since before time I have been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. So laugh with me and hold my hand. Let us say goodbye. Say goodbye to meet again soon. We meet today. We will meet again tomorrow. We will meet at the source every moment. We meet each other in all forms of life. So let's have a a minute or two of quiet.